Our reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realise they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on top of him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, 
Your servant Uriah the Hethite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, The men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hethite is also dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this matter upset you, because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello everyone. It's good to be able to be with you remotely, if not in person. Um, uh, just before we get started with our sermon this morning, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be able to uh, share the word with you still through this uh, through this way. We're all doing very well, uh, although obviously all my family is around me. So I apologize in advance if there are any sort of screaming, screechings or other uh, child noises in the background as we um, as we look at this wonderful passage from 1 Samuel 11 here. Now, uh, today we're going to continue the, the story of the book of Samuel. Now, remember last week we said that uh, 1 and 2 Samuel is really just one book. But because of how big it is, it was split into two different scrolls, which we now have as the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And we saw last week that the theme of the book that God raises In the passage we read last week, which is the story of David slaying Goliath, it's the passage where the story in Samuel for Saul turns around. It is exactly there that Saul's rise to power turns around, and the rest of the book of 1 Samuel shows us how King Saul's power declines. He becomes more and more paranoid. He tries to murder David a number of times. He chases David through the countryside. He pursues him like a madman. And throughout this time, David has many opportunities to kill Saul, but he steadfastly refuses to do so. He holds on to this belief that God is the one who has to deal with Saul. God put Saul on the throne. He's the one who put him there, so he's the one who has to remove him. And so uh, from David slaying Goliath, Saul's power and reputation declines over time. But so too does David's power and reputation increase. And so there's kind of this inverse uh, thing. As Saul's power and fame decreases, David's glory and power increases. Now, 
David is presented as this wonderful king. You know, he, he has this great relationship with God. He talks to God. He trusts in God. He obeys God's commands. Um, and, and because we know, because we've been reading this story of God's rescue plan from the beginning, right back from the Garden of Eden, as we read of this wonderful King David, we start to think, don't we? Maybe this is the one. We've been looking for someone to come and finally set things right. Someone who could enact God's rescue plan. Someone who could be the one who finally shows the world what it's like to really truly live under God's rule, to be this light to the nations. We know that it wasn't Moses. He got angry. He uh, he stole a sort of God's glory for himself when he struck the rock in the desert. And so Moses was disqualified. It wasn't Aaron, the high priest. You know, he's the one who helped the people make this golden calf at Mount Sinai. And he told the people, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. We saw as we continued traveling that it wasn't the judges either. They themselves got worse and worse and eventually led Israel to look uh, no different than the nations around them. Maybe it was the King Saul. And last week we saw that he turned his back on God. He turned uh, trusted in his own strength and the strength of his army and he failed to defeat the Philistines. So it wasn't Saul either. Now maybe it's David. Here is a man who trusts God. He has faith. He's a man after God's own heart. He's a mighty and righteous king whose, whose character seems perfect. He relies on God. He does what's right. Could David be the one? Well, we're going to look today at the story um, of David's uh, failure as a person, showing that he actually isn't the one. And we're going to do so looking under three different headings, temptation, cover-up, and repentance. Temptation, cover-up, and repentance. So so let's have a look. Let's start with verse 1 and uh, just kind of explore this as we go along. And it says in verse 1, In the spring, when the kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Already we can see there's a bit of a problem brewing here, isn't there? If you've been reading 2 Samuel, you will know that at the end of the previous chapter, 2 Samuel 10, um, David really is at the height of his power. His throne is established, his life is settled, he's kind of living his best life now, right? He has power, he has wealth, he's got military success, he has everything you could ever want or need. He's living a hashtag blessed life. But it's precisely here where he fails. And I think that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because we know that it, that often it, it is when times are really tough, where we can in fact fall into temptation, uh, and in this case into adultery. It's, it's, it's more often true that when we are stressed, or when things aren't going home uh, well at home, or when our businesses aren't working out, or when our jobs are stressful, or, or, or it's in these difficult and stressful times that we turn to the escapism that an affair promises or that uh, sin promises. We know we shouldn't, but in these moments of weakness and stress, Satan tempts us at just this time to get away from it all. And he, he snares us with this promise that, you know, no one will truly know, no one will find out. In the end, it doesn't really matter. We can fall 
precisely when things are going difficult. But that's not what's going on here, is it? David is living his best life. Everything is sorted. There's there's relative peace in the kingdom. His throne is established, is at the height of his power. But it's precisely here that David fails. So why is that? Friends, it's because he has become complacent. He has put his feet up. He's taken a rest from the physical and spiritual struggle of ruling Israel. He's been distracted from his purpose and his calling. As a result of this, he's forgotten how much he relies on God. He has done, in a way, what Saul did exactly before him. He forgot who he was and who God was. He forgot how reliant he was on God. He forgets his place and his purpose before God. He forgets what he was called to do, uh, to rule his people and to rule them as a king under God. And so he finds himself in a position where, in all of his might and glory, he can stay home in the springtime when kings go out to march for war. It is in the spring when the kings go to war. And it is exactly at this time when kings go to war that this King David puts up his feet and enjoys the good things. Friends, do you see the danger of success? The danger of living and having this hashtag blessed life, living an insta-worthy life? You know, it distracts us from our true purpose. It tempts us away from the calling God has given us. And the Proverbs, the wisdom writers in the Bible knew this. Listen to what the proverb writer says in Proverbs 30, verse 8 to 9. He says, he's praying to Lord and to God, and he says, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Do you see the wisdom of mediocrity, friends? Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you. One commentator puts it this way. He says, when life showers us with goodness, we tend to assume that we were the ones who caused it. And God gets pushed to the periphery of our life. He he gets pushed to the edge of our being. Have you and I gotten so much stuff that God has been pushed to the edge? Have we had so much success in this life that God has been pushed to the periphery? Have you forgotten how much you rely on God? Have we, like David, forgotten our calling and our purpose? You see, God had made him, that is David, for a much higher purpose. He he had put him in charge of Israel. And and instead of fighting the battle that David was supposed to be fighting, instead of being there with his men, David had pulled away, had withdrawn from what he was called to do. How often it is true of us that when we turn from the spiritual fight, when we get derailed from our purpose, that sin has its way with us. It is exactly when we depart from the path that God has put out for us that sin has its way with us. And so here the scene is set. 
David is at home on his roof. He is alone. Last week I kept on saying, you are not David. But how much like David are we in this moment? You know, we're not like David when he's out there fighting Goliath. You're not David when you're when he's delivering his people and being the saviour to Israel, saving you from the enemy. That's not you. You're not David then. But you are David when you are faced with temptation, with temptation and fail. When we have walked away from God and from the fight that he has called us into, when we have become so comfortable with our stuff, with our station in life, with the ease of our lives and the comfort of our palaces, in these moments we can be like David. When we have walked away from our purpose as human beings to bring God glory, to spread his kingdom, to share his word, to subdue this earth, to do everything we do as if we are doing it unto the Lord. When we wander from this purpose, you and I are just like David in 2 Samuel 11. And friends, when we have walked away from our calling, we are far more likely to fall into temptation, just like David did. And so here we find David doing exactly what he shouldn't. The story goes that he exploits his power. He has Bathsheba brought to him. He sleeps with her, commits adultery with her, and gets her pregnant. Temptation and sin. Because David forgot who he was and left his station, forgot his calling, forgot how much he relied on God, and so he finds himself falling to temptation. That's part one. Part two is the cover-up, and it's, it's how David tries to deal with, uh, with the situation. And so as it happens, Bathsheba comes to David. She tells him, look, I'm pregnant. And David, now having fallen to relying on his own strength and power and cunning, comes up with a cunning plan. He writes to his commander and says, uh, send me Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And so Uriah returns. And David's plan is to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that he'll think that the baby is his. But of course it doesn't work. Uriah here ends up being more righteous than David. And instead of going home, he sleeps in the same place as all David's servants uh, sleep. He stays with the palace guard. And, and so Uriah, having just returned from the battle in an act of camaraderie, decides that he shouldn't be comfortable if all of his comrades in battle are sleeping rough. And so David's plan doesn't work. But David is a king. He's not easily to be dismayed. And so he takes another step. He goes further. Maybe he says to himself, if I can get Uriah drunk, then surely my plan would work. But do you see what's happening here, friends? It's exactly the same thing that happens when, when sin is covered up. More sin follows. And so David here, he's committed this adultery and, he, and now he sins trying to cover it up. He's trying to shift the blame. And so when that doesn't work, he wants to get Uriah drunk so that his plan could succeed. One sin leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's what often happens when we try to deal with our own sin. The plan goes from bad to worse. And part two of his plan fails too. Uriah doesn't go to his wife. Finally, 
David has to resort to murder. He says to himself, if I cannot cover it up, I need to take Uriah out. And so he writes to his commander again, put Uriah on the front lines and then withdraw so he will die. And that is exactly what happens. Uriah dies, as does a number of David's other soldiers. And David thinks that he's finally free. He marries Bathsheba, she bears him a son, and they live happily ever, right? Wrong. Verse 27 tells us, However, the Lord considered what David had done evil. And so we see that David isn't it. He cannot be the one who ushers in the rescue plan. He too has failed. And yet, and yet David is called a man after God's own heart. How does that work? Here is a man who exploited his power. He stole a woman. He murdered a man. He was responsible for the deaths of the soldiers around Uriah as well, as well as murdering Uriah uh, through a battle. How can David be a man after God's own heart? Really, how can we be people after God's own heart? Because of what happens next. Because of what happens after his sin. Friends, do you want to be a person after God's own heart? Then come with me as we look at what happens after this terrible sin is committed. We saw temptation and sin. We saw the cover-up, but now let's look at the path to being people after God's own heart. Repentance. So what happens after David and Bathsheba get married really is a story of God's extraordinary, extraordinary grace. You see, David was the king of Israel. A king's word and a king's rule in those days was absolute. David was the lawmaker, the judge, the jury the executioner sometimes too. If David had been the king of any other nation, he would have gotten away with what had happened. But David wasn't the king of just any nation. He was God's king. He was loved by God. And because of that, God would not let his sin go. Friends, have you ever considered that it is precisely because God loves you that he just won't let your sin go? In this case, he sends the prophet Nathan to confront David and to expose David's sin. And we have this all recorded in chapter 12 and onwards. It was precisely, though, because God loved David that his sin had to be uncovered. His sin had to be exposed. God's purpose wasn't so much to humiliate David, but to humble him. And it worked. In his grace, God breaks through David's callous heart and he, and he causes David to turn back to him. Friends, how often is this not what we need too? Nathan the prophet is specifically sent to expose David's sin. And as painful as that exposure was, as difficult as it was for David to, be, uh, to have his sin laid bare for all to see, it is that exposure that brought David back. To God. Sometimes that's what we need too. But it's what David does with this exposure that makes him a man after God's own heart. 
what does he do? He truly repents. Now, we often think repentance is being just sorry for our sin. Right? That's that's kind of what we think. Repentance is being sorry for your sin. But it's not just that. Repentance isn't just being sorry for your sin or being sorry that you got caught out in your sin or being sorry that your sin has been exposed. Repentance is a heart change, a heart change that requires us to come face to face with our sin. Repentance requires us to look deep into the mirrors of our souls and to see the darkness that hides there in our hearts, to see the darkness reflected back at us and to hate it, to hate the heart that makes it so, to hate the effects that our sin cause on other people, to hate the fact that we are sinful people, to look deeply into who we are and to recognize that we are sinners. And then to turn to God, to ask Him to give you a new heart and and to fix the brokenness in our hearts, to bring light to the darkness we see reflected there, and then to trust that He will give us a new life in Jesus and then to live out of that new life. That's what true repentance looks like. But friends, that's exactly how David responds. And it is because he responds in that way that he is a man after God's own heart. Now, we are very fortunate uh, as people who have the Bible because David's response to this exposure of Nathan is captured for us in Psalm 51. David includes his prayer of repentance for us in one of his Psalms. And he gives us then this model for how we too can be these people that are after God's own heart. If you want to be a person after God's own heart, then this is the model of repentance that you need to follow. So if you have your Bibles with me, I'm going to read for us Psalm uh, 51. Psalm 51, for the choir director, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your, un- uh, to, to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the the rebellious your ways and sinners will turn to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise the broken and humbled heart, O God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So what does true repentance look like? What is required for us to be these kind of people after God's own heart? True repentance, step one, come to God with nothing. So David has his sin exposed and where does he go? He goes to God, his only hope. God's character is his anchor. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. This is God's grace at work. This is God's grace on display for us all to see. Notice what David doesn't say, though. He doesn't say, Oh, Lord, remember how I always did the right thing when Saul was within my grasp? He doesn't say, God, remember that one time I slew Goliath for you and defeated the Philistines? He doesn't say, remember how I trusted you and how I built up Israel and united Israel as the first really, truly good king in Israel? David doesn't do any of these things. No, he comes to God with nothing. Have mercy on me, O God. Why should God have mercy, does he say? On what basis should God have mercy, says David? On the basis of God's unfailing love. His abundant compassion. David here is appealing to God on the basis of God's character. He says, blot out my transgression. Friends, is this how you come before God to ask for forgiveness for sin? With truly nothing to offer? Nothing except the darkness reflected there in the mirror of your soul? The old hymn was right when the hymn writer said, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Step one of true repentance is to come to God with nothing. Step two is to own your sinful heart. David says, I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. Uh, And then in verse 5, he says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We find this difficult, don't we, friends? In our hearts, we we want to say, don't we, we want to just say, Lord, I slipped up. Oh, Lord, I had a moment of weakness. Lord, I made a bit of a mistake. I, I had a bit of a stuff up. Will you forgive me? But that's not the model of repentance we have here. Have mercy on me according to your great compassion. Why? Not because I did this one sin this one time. But why? Because sin is at the very core of my being. Sin sits right in the middle of who I am. Lord, I have looked into the mirror of my soul and all I see is darkness, darkness all around. Guilty I was when I was born. Sinful I was even before I was born, at my conception. This, O Lord, is who I am. Unless you and I own our very nature of sin, our very sin nature, our repentance does not go far enough. Yes, it's true. 
that we need to confess our individual sin. But friends, the individual sin isn't the real problem, is it? It is our very sin nature that's the problem. The very core of our being that's the problem. The real problem lies inside us, not what we do. It's not so much, you know, sorry Lord, I had a moment of weakness. It is, sorry Lord, I am nothing but weakness. It's not, sorry Lord, I had a bit of a stuff up. But it's, sorry Lord, I'm stuffed up at the very core of who I am. My heart is dark and wicked and sinful and will always turn away from you and will always turn to sin, O Lord, unless you intervene. Step two, own your sinful heart. Is this what your repentance looks like? Do you understand that it's not your sin in its individual sin that's the problem? but the very nature you have before God. Own your sinful heart. Step one, go to God with nothing. Step two, own your sinful heart. Step three, fix your eyes on Jesus. In verses 6 to 12, um, uh, David has this passage of this psalm that points us directly towards Jesus. You know, once you've, uh, once you've gone to God with nothing, once you've owned your sinful heart, the last part is to turn your eyes to Jesus. These verses 6 to 12, we don't really have the time to go into them, but they point us to the cross. You know, it is on the cross where our sin is finally dealt with. It is on, our cross, on the cross where our sins are taken and where we are washed whiter than snow. It's at the cross where our crushed spirits turn to joy in the forgiveness we have. It is at the cross that God turns his face away from our sins. It is at the cross that he blots out our guilt in Jesus Christ. It is at the cross that our sins are dealt with. And it is at the cross that God can give us a new heart. Friends, it's at the cross where God promises that for all who are in Christ, we are never banished from his presence. It is at the cross where Jesus dies, clearing a way for the Holy Spirit to come and to live with us forever. And it's exactly at the cross where our salvation is assured, where our joy is kindled forevermore. True repentance looks to the cross to deal with our sin. That is where true repentance takes us, to the cross. Once we have turned to God, Uh, based on his mercy and compassion, and once we have have, uh, confessed our sinful heart, confessing our sin, friends, we only need to look to Jesus to see that we are truly forgiven ever forevermore. It is there that God has taken your sin and put it on Jesus, where Jesus takes it willingly and dies in our place. Step three is to look to the cross. And then step four is to live a new life. You see, having seen again and appreciated at a new and deeper level what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we get up and we start again and we live in the light of this new reality we have. After David cries to God to give him this clean heart and to renew a steadfast spirit within him, he says in verse 13, Then 
I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will turn to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Knowing that he is forgiven, knowing that we are forgiven, we can with David teach the rebellious God's ways, so sinners will turn to him. Having experienced that kind of forgiveness, how can we not tell others of Jesus and his ways? And so that's it, friends. That's how true repentance work, works. We go to God with nothing. We own our sinful hearts. We turn our eyes to Jesus. And then having been forgiven by Jesus on the cross as he takes our sins, step four, we live a new life. If you want to be a person after God's own heart, like David was, then this is how you repent. The question is, do you? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity to once again come and sit under your word and learn what it is like um, or should be like to be your people. I want to pray that you take these words, that you, uh, I guess, plant them deep in our hearts. Teach us, Lord, as you have this morning, to, re to repent well, to live in the light of the goodness we have in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you will help us to live out of this reality so that we too, like David, can be people uh, who are the people after your own heart because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because of the gracious model of repentance you've given us here this morning. And so we pray this, Lord, not because we deserve it, but out of your precious uh, um, love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.